Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 15, Hyrology. The mere fact that there is such a thing, such a term, as hyrology means that to the person who devised the term, there was some meaning worth considering. The word hieros is a word that was used for a person that today loosely we would call a priest. But there is a considerable difference in the meaning of the two terms, and this meaning we will have to discuss because the change from the term hieros to that of priest is a change from consideration of power as such to reason. Now you know that there are two modes of looking at human motivation. One of them is to assume that human motivation should be, ought to be, must become rational. And the other view is that it has no need to be rational wherever it can get away with being irrational. We know that men of very great strength, men of power in the past historically, have actually imposed their will, their might, on other people. We are slowly moving towards a third world war. The reason we are studying hierology is related to this fact. In the last war, the Nagasaki-Hiroshima bombs demonstrated that there is very, very serious danger to civilian populations. What we know about man at war, historically, is that he has used all the power he has had at command to destroy his enemies. We have not found him, in fact, inhibiting the use of the power that he has had. In the old days when men had nothing except rather stronger nails than today's diet allows and fangs for teeth, they scratched and bit each other. There seemed to be very, very little inhibition about the use of these weapons. When he discovered that he could throw pieces of rock about, he did so. And we know that animals like chimpanzees do this kind of thing. They do use weapons. They throw coconuts and stones and sticks at each other. And as soon as they lose control of themselves, that is to say, as soon as some basic motivation in them is crossed or threatened from outside, they tend to react with all the weapons they have. We cannot expect that the men leading the world today the men who 
have at their command nuclear weapons will quite suddenly develop self-control in the use of force. The only real deterrent today is the real danger that the men using the force they have might destroy themselves. There's so much force now that that is a possibility. And we want to imagine for a moment that there is going to be another world war and that in this war there will be no inhibition on the use of power. That every conceivable power that is being investigated now in all the major countries of the world is going to be used at least experimentally on a large scale. That millions of people are going to be destroyed. That a uh, an old biblical prophecy will be fulfilled. There will be two men in the field and one will be taken and the other left. That if it were not halted by some power interfering with it, all flesh would perish from the earth. Talking to a man the other day about this, a very well placed man in the field of physics, he said to me that he believed that the youth of today would not tolerate this third world war with nuclear weapons. I said that the youth of today was in process of growing up and that the chemistry that made them youthful was in fact changing and that those very persons he was talking about were already moving towards a new condition, an approach to chemical balance to maturity that would make them see the thing differently and that there would be a new youth by the time the Third World War is ready who will be as much fed up with peace as people are after a six-year war with war and that one cannot trust youth as an abstract category that youth is highly reactive and that the very same youth that can be pacifist under certain situations can become violently militarist under others. Let us imagine that this Third World War has happened, that there has been at least a reduction of the population of the Earth, so that there are only half the people left on Earth. Mao Zedong had said to Khrushchev when he said we can't afford an atomic war Mao replied we can imagine a thousand million Chinese which there will be at the time this war is ready they can afford to lose 500 million and still have enough left for that purpose in fact, it will solve quite a lot of their economic problems, so to do. Now, imagine that this war has occurred and nuclear weapons have been used, bacterial warfare has been used, gases, nerve gases, every conceivable kind of destructive agent has been employed. The population of the Earth has been at least halved and that the few that remain are in scattered localities throughout the world. In other words, it's rather like a very, very primitive situation.
except in one respect. In the case of primitive peoples, we know that the human race appeared in certain localities and spread out from there and acquired its knowledge gradually in the spreading out. Imagine a situation in which suddenly, without spreading out, you find little pockets of people scattered all over the globe with all means of communication destroyed and each little pocket of people has only the knowledge contained in the intelligence of each individual within that small group. Now what is the duty in human terms of a small group of people in a terrain where there may be hundreds, thousands of miles before the next small group? What is the function of the intelligence of those people? And how much will they know? How much will they know about what to do? What is a human relation? So, what we want to do is make it statistically possible for at least one group of people in uh, every major area, we'll say every country of the world, a sufficient number of intelligent people with the right concept to be able to define what humanity is in order to say that when all the destruction is finished, these little packets of human beings shall have some intelligent tradition, intelligent leadership, so that instead of reverting to a very, very primitive state of violent interchange of energies, that they shall in fact commune together when they meet, and instead of falling down to the level of little private gangs, again battling for material dominance, that they shall consciously exchange the concepts of real humanity that they have managed to preserve. Does anybody believe that the human race is going to go from now through the rest of time without another major conflict? Without using the weapons of power now available to it? If you believe that it's possible for the human race to get through the rest of time without fighting in violent terms for material dominion, using every weapon they have, nuclear, bacteriological, chemical, and so on, raise a hand. Is there anybody who believes it? Possible. Possible. Yes, possible, I think so. Yes, it's possible. Do you believe that that possibility is a probability? Um, no, but I think it's a real possibility. The only reason it is a possibility is because you will not rule out logically from your mind a course of action from an infinity of courses. Let's say, yes. And no more. Correct, yes. Mm -hmm. So we can't really rely on that, can we? Oh, no. No. <laughs> so really it means that in so far as we can individually say that if we are still alive at the end of the next war 
we have managed to retain some of the concepts of the essential nature of humanity and human relations, then we will have a duty to voice this in whatever remains of the human race there shall prove to be. Now, there are certain basic things about the universe upon which all traditions of humanity have rested. And these have been expressed with certain symbols which have been condensed into letters of the alphabet, which have been used to construct words and so on. And we said at the beginning, two of these words, hieros, a word that degenerated or was replaced by the word priest, and the word sacred are very important for this study. We want to know if we are surviving in little pockets all over the globe, can we get a sufficient number of people who understand basic principles of universal being and evolution so that we do not repeat exactly the same pattern of a progressive build-up and use of material powers, one group against another. Let's see what this involves. The universe today, as a matter of fact, not a matter of theory, is a universe of energy behaving in certain patterns. There is no matter that is not energy. There is no material world divorced from energy. Energy, a force involved in working processes, in that actual working has made matter. Matter is a behavior of energy. This being so, our own material body is energy. The functions of this material body are conducted by energies. Some of these functions are those we know under the names of feeling, willing and thinking. And that whatever happens inside us of which we are conscious, it is always an energy function that we are considering. Whether we will or feel or think, we are talking about modalities of energy. And the peculiar thing about this energy is that mysteriously, it is somehow, certainly in the human being, less obviously in the animal, less obviously in the plant, and hardly noticeably in the mineral, able to determine its own course. Human beings feel, whatever anybody may argue to the contrary against free will, each individual human being feels that he or she can, in fact, prefer to do one thing rather than another. Can, in fact, make a choice of some kind, choice of what idea to accept, what emotion to build up or subdue, what volitional impulse to support or destroy, and these are immediate facts of human experience. Therefore, in the human being we can say, because matter is only energy, the material human being is a behavior of energy, and that that energy in him has somehow produced in itself a process whereby it can, has created an object of reference, its own body, 
and conducts processes within this body, processes of willing, of feeling, of thinking, such that it can determine its own behavior pattern in the present and by projection in the future. Projecting into the future by creating in the present conditions under which it will have to work. Now, we're going to use primitive symbols, which you already know, but don't think of as primitive. And the symbol we will start with is the symbol of a letter H. And if we go back historically, we can add another horizontal and another, and say it is a simple drawing of a ladder. This is the ladder to all high designs. The symbol of differentiation of powers, of superior powers and inferior powers. This ladder, here the straight line form, appears in another form, in Egyptian. Notice again the three levels. Has a piece of cord twisted three times. Both have the same meaning. The ladder is the letter H and the thrice-twisted cord is the letter H in the Egyptian hieroglyph. Now, this symbol meant power. Ultimate power which, by its modalities, produces differentiation. And that in the act of so doing, it imposes on itself. Now, remember, we have used the paper as the symbol of the continuum of power or spirit, sentient power, and we have drawn lines upon the paper simply to represent the movement of the paper. We are asserting that in the position of science today, not theoretically, but experimentally, matter is only energy. That this energy ultimately is a continuum, a field not made of parts, a field of power, and that there is nothing other than this field of power. This power behaves, functions, and this behavior, these functions of this power, are what we call the universe. Every time we see a form, a physical body, an idea in the mind, anything whatever that is describable, circumscribable, we are dealing with power and nothing but power. Now the essential thing of this basic concept, basic to the sacred and to the hierological, is that this power absolutely has no parts, and that whatever it does in any locality within itself, it is the sole authority for this doing, this event, this happening. Today we create happenings to avoid boredom. There's nothing new about that. God did that. This continuum field of power is the only authority for whatever has happened in the universe in the past, for whatever now exists in the universe, mineral, vegetable, animal, human, angelic. 
and consequently all problems have solutions only in terms of power modality that a person that has no power inside himself to control his own power or no self-control this person in non-comprehension of his own being is at the mercy of any other zone of a modalizing power we have H the ladder cut down to save time and we observe that it is a symbol two parallel lines which strangely enough do not meet at infinity they just don't meet they cannot meet and they represent the dialectic of being in heraldic terms this side of the H is the dexter side and this side is the sinister side you would tend non-heraldically to refer to the sinister side here as the right side looking at it and if you remember this symbol is held by someone facing you as a knight would hold his shield with his emblem upon it you realize that this side of it the sinister side is the left hand side of that ladder then the next side is the right hand side of that ladder if it is held by a man facing you and this symbology runs through all major religions the right hand side the dexter side of that ladder has been used for thousands of years to represent power in its fullness power that dares to extrovert itself <coughs> power that dares to show itself because it knows it cannot be beaten this side therefore we can write have on it and on the other side we can write have not the sinister side represents have not the dexter side represents have what is being had there and they who have had it know what this means power is all there is if you have power to be physically that's something if you have power existing physically to mobilize yourself physically that is something if you can mobilize your emotions that is something if you can mobilize your ideas that is something if you can create new orientations for your power that is something but if you can't do these things or are deficient in any way in these things to that extent you are moving towards the sinister side in the political field the right hand side is the conservative side the side that has the power the left hand side is the labor that hasn't had historically the savvy to know how it was that the other men got on top which is not necessarily a bad thing but it is we know by examination of people in general 
that the motivation of people at the bottom is not superior to the motivation of people at the top. It is just weaker, <coughs> just less well informed. So we can't make a hundred percent vote for the left and say all people <coughs> who have no power are decent and should have the power and all people who have power are indecent and should not have power. Let's examine this ladder again carefully. The dexter side of it means power, the power you have. Whether it's physical, emotional, rational, spiritual, whatever kind of power it is, if you have it, to that extent you are on the dexter side of this ladder and you are dexterous in that field. But if you have not those things, then you are on the sinister side. And let's imagine in a confrontation of power, in a field of power, posit this field of power is sentient. Let's imagine that this white paper represents the field of power, and the movement is initiated in any zone of that power. Remember there is nothing other than power, and therefore that initiated movement of power is self-initiated. Mm. Let's take, to clarify this, the very first movement of power, the very first movement that ever occurred in this infinite field of sentient power. The first movement had no precedent to refer to. There could have been no reason for it to move. Because it had not yet moved. But when it moved, its movement must have been absolutely arbitrary. No ground, no rationale of movement. Just a movement. Now when this movement occurred, it followed that in the zones round about it, something had happened. A stimulus had been given by the initiating column to the zone roundabout. I'll make a perspective drawing of it by drawing a spiral round that column. And I want you to think that it is something like a long tube with an arrow going through it. But the, the tube came into existence because the arrow moved. Now this is the key to all hierarchy and all human influence, and all angelic influence too, for that matter, within the infinite continuum of power, initiative, and nothing but initiative, created the opposite of it. Initiative activity created subordination and passivity. It is absolutely essential to grasp this. Imagine you're wandering about on this practically destroyed globe and you have only one idea in your mind and this is it. That if I meet another human being, if I lose my initiative, I will go under his initiative if he has any and if he has not, we'll both continue wandering in a purely negative manner. So with all our getting, we have to get the initiative. 
Here there's the diagram. A moving column, an arrow, creating round it, in the field, a turbulence, which in effect, because it's in a continuum, is just like a tube. But it is a tube that has been brought into being by initiative. The word tube actually is phonetically exactly correct. Because the teen it means this initiating force. And the ube in it means this recipient zone through which this arrow is travelling. Now, the one who initiated this movement came into existence by self-initiation, not by anything else, by self-initiation. If he had not initiated a movement which brought him into existence, he could not even have been educated. He would have no concept whatever of his position. He would have been a non-determined zone in an infinite continuum of sentient power and utterly unaware of that fact. But the one that initiates discovers that in the act of initiating he creates. In that moment of initiation in the field round him a zone of turbulence. And this zone gives the initiator a resistance. And this resistance gives the initiator proof that he is an initiator. And if there were no resistance at all round him, he would not know that he was an initiator. Therefore, the initiator creates resistance deliberately in order to enhance his self-awareness of his own initiative power. He must be born in the sign of the man. All rams know about this section. They initiate things all the time. So, in fact, the peculiar thing about this initiator is that he creates the conditions of his own self-realization, but the field round him has been subordinated by that initiator and reduced to the level of a mere resistance provider to the initiator. Imagine the position now. This power is sentient. When the column moves, it creates a zone of turbulence around it, and it pushes into power that has not yet moved. So we can draw a letter U upside down, or if you prefer it, we'll draw it the right way out, this way. In this case, the arrow is moving this way. It doesn't matter which way we draw it. For those who don't like either of those, we'll have a horizontal one. It's all the same. The essential thing is that in whatever direction initiation projects itself, it pushes into power and does a very peculiar thing. It makes itself aware that it has moved. 
because it is moving in a resistance, but the resistance it has itself created. Now, if it doesn't like resistance, all it has to do is stop, cease to be, strive no more, desist, be a Taoist, follow Lao Tse, do anything, but don't move. Most people haven't got enough self-control yet to do that. Because, of course, if you do that, the whole field collapses. And the thing that was brought into being around you doesn't exist anymore, and feels it doesn't exist anymore, and if it's human, it says, I feel as if I don't exist anymore. But, from the point of view of the initiator, because it initiated it, it feels fine. Because it can, in fact, push as hard as it wills to push. And just as there's a ceiling for the speed of a boat, you know, the speed of a boat depends on the length of the hull in relation to the width of it, in non-nautical terms. So that you can get a certain number of knots out of a boat for a certain length and width. And if you double the power of the engine, you will not double the speed, because the speed is determined by those proportions. And in the same way, a certain length of initiation, there is a certain period of time spent in thinking about the same thing, going in the same direction, can carry you through at a certain rate, overcoming resistances. <coughs> but there is a certain ceiling for every finite intent. And at that point, the bow wave on this boat is building up and up and up, the resistance of the water in front of the boat, and some turbulence around it, is in effect providing a limiting factor to the movement of this initiating arrow boat. He can stop when it gets very, very hard. Or he could say, well, I don't care about this resistance thing, it's impossible for me to go any faster, I'll push harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And if he does this, he's likely, if he's identified with the speedboat, to melt out of the speedboat on the ocean. In which case he will pass into another dimension of being. There are such dimensions to go into. He can decide and it is because he can decide how far he will go before he stops. But it says, when God created, behold, he saw everything that it was good. We've done the meaning of the word good before. It is goo, primary will, plus D, the limit to which you go. And you define for yourself the limit. The distance against the resistance that you will go before you stop. We've considered it from the point of view of the initiator a little. Let's look at it from the point of view of the column brought into being by the initiator. We have said that the field is sentient power, that is, it feels itself. What is the feeling of this zone round an initiating column when the column starts to move? Well, firstly, it is made aware of itself as a field in which a column of energy is moving. It is also aware that it did not itself initiate this movement. 
it is therefore aware that for this particular movement it is dependent upon that initiator. <coughs> now if it had something in it at that moment that allowed it to say, well, they're all a continuum anyway, and therefore I could will, I could initiate, I could have initiated even before this fellow did. If the zone around this moving column attains that sudden insight, which is not impossible, by the same law that mm -hmm. Mr. Freeman said that war is possibly avoidable, if this column round it, on starting to move, were to seize its own initiative and refuse to terminate, refuse to oppose that initiating column, then the initiating column would have no resistance whatever and would be unaware that it had moved and the initiation would have passed from the column in to the surrounding field, which would then have become the initiator. And so a battle would go on. Now, factually, this battle goes on in the human race all the time. In every human being, there is an intent to initiate some kind of change or state. And in every other human being, there is an intent to inhibit this, to redirect it, to destroy it, or build it up more than it intended. Continuous <coughs> reciprocal interference is going on all the time whether expressed openly, verbally, or not. Because this is sentient, because this power feels what it is, because it feels the modalities, the motions induced in it, either by its own initiative, or by the initiative of an adjacent zone, or by a moving column passing through it, because it is made more aware of itself, because of its heightened self-being consciousness, it tends to hang on to the thing that had the initiative that created this being awareness in it. So far we haven't used sexual terms for this, and we don't need to. Throughout we can just carry on with it, but we will say that in the history of the human race, and in the hierological structures of tradition, the right-hand side of the ladder has been said to be male, the left-hand side female, that all passivity is said to be female, and all initiative male. Remember, these are terms fabricated for specific uses. <coughs> and obviously, as far as the initiators have been concerned in the past, because when they initiate, they can determine the degree of resistance that they create. In other words, because they can actually create the kind of universe they want, providing the rest of the field remains passive to their intent. Because of this, the initiators have had, and still have, in the field of world statesmanship, politics, government, have had the intent to continue passivity of other beings, wherever it is, to educate other beings into passivity, wherever possible, and to preach virtue in passivity, wherever possible, 
says that the true initiatives shall in fact be able to create the kind of universe that they desire. William Blake said, reason is the outward bound of will. He said that when this motion is initiated, in the very first instance in the infinite continuum, there is no reason for it to move. This movement is a pure arbitrary movement, a volition with no prior formal process to decide. Once it is on the move and building up its resistance, it can continue any distance whatever that it wills to do because it is in principle infinite and omnipotent. But at certain distances from centers of initiation, it has ontologically and historically willed only so far in a given period of time and then it has stopped. And where it has stopped, it has made a statement. And that statement is reason. It has spoken because it has stopped. So that when free will, arbitrarily moving, has brought itself to a point where it decides thus far no farther, then it has drawn a line and said, I have moved up to here. This is the term in the here and now to date of my volitional intent and this is my reason. I mentioned we have a point of initiation but every motion starts with a point. Imagine that we start to expand this point because this point is an initiated intent to dominate all space from this point. So, the point moves in one direction, and because it is sentient, it knows that it didn't move in another direction, so it oscillates back, and it knows it didn't move in this direction, and it knows it didn't move up and down. If we do a perspective of this, we can say, here is a point, and it is moving backwards and forwards, oscillating that way, oscillating that way, and oscillating up and down. The oscillation in three dimensions of this point produces a sphere. It doesn't matter whether this sphere is a subatomic particle or the whole universe. It is an oscillation because that sentient power has moved. Movement requires you to leave a place and go from that place in some direction. And having gone there, the directions in which you have not gone have been neglected. If you aim at world dominion, universal dictatorship, the creation of your world, you will have to oscillate in all directions. Do this in three planes and you have a sphere. The circumscribing line that appears around that, at this point, oscillates rapidly in all directions like this. It does so over a finite distance. And it describes a sphere. And that sphere is a being self-created by self-oscillation of sentient power. Now that ball is the B-O-L in diabolic. That is the stone that Omar says, or Fitzgerald for him, 
the stone that put the stars to flight. Someone threw a stone into the infinite continuum of sentient power. That stone was a self-precipitated stone. It threw itself. And therefore it was the first initiator of a finiting process. Because it was initiating a finiting process, it was in effect locking up its own being. It was putting itself in prison. Because, by so doing, it had a heightened sense of awareness and joy in initiative. Imagine this ball now throws itself about the universe. You know that if you get a long piece of string, or a short piece if you like, and tie on the end of it a little lighty bit of paraffin soaked rag and whiz it round, you can make one point of light a circle, which looks visually, or to certain properties of vision, like a continuous circle of fire, although you know rationally there is one point of fire going round, and the rest is a simple system of function of the retina. I imagine you move your hand in such a way by turning it in different directions, and instead of drawing a circle, you draw a sphere, made entirely out of one point spark. And this one point spark is initiative, your initiative. You whirl it about, and if you have a very long piece of string, those of you who have been boys have probably done this, and the ball on the end of the string, wrapped round with rags soaked in paraffin, but the ball is fairly heavy. As you swirl it round, you can let the string slip through your fingers so that the radius of the circles you are describing is continuously increasing. Imagine that because of the continuum nature of power, there is no reason why, given the necessary know-how, you shouldn't let go an infinity of string and swipe out of the infinite sentient power field a sphere in which you were lord. But to do this in the temporal sense would require everlasting time. And certainly temporal beings haven't got that much patience. So they're usually satisfied with a short bit of string and they whirl it round, and they look at the line of fiery initiative that they describe in the office or wherever they do it, and they say, that's good enough for my authority. They draw a line, and they say, up to that line, I am author. I am the supreme authority in this zone. You can easily imagine that another fellow over here with more ambition keeps lengthening his string until his ball might hit the ball of the other fellow. Destroy his sphere of being. Now, as initiative is a property of the continuum of sentient power, the man struck has no legitimate ground of complaint. And the man striking need make no excuse. And this means that people who don't like being hit by other people 
have no real ethical right or ground of complaint. All they have is a possibility of sharpening their wits and learning how to dodge or increase their own radius of action. St. Paul called this strong meat not fit for babies. I think we've seen in the New Africa, in all the various African states, sufficient evidence of this. That peoples suddenly given, if you can give such things, freedom, have merely shown themselves to be areas in which individuals <coughs> have seized the initiative and fought. And according to their inner self-awareness, their physical capacities, their emotional readiness, their rational, analytical power, their intuition, their initiative, and so on. According to all these things, some have come out on top, some have gone underneath, some who were on top have fallen down and been replaced by others. This is perfectly obvious. Africa has shown in a few short years what the history of the human race has shown certainly over 12,000 years. Namely, that initiative is the sole determinant of what is going to happen. And that between original initiative and counter-initiative, there is a battle going on. Now, imagine, again, we're talking about power, and here is our glyph. And this is only an economic glyph. We should draw three rungs on it. Uh, seven rungs and an infinity of rungs. Remind ourselves that we have three because in every situation whatever, if we are to analyse it and seize the initiative in it, we must seize the initiative in three ways. We must fabricate a new concept that is not already in existence because we must break inertia of ideas. We must fabricate a new emotional attitude what is called the new value judgment in philosophy. And we must get hold of our own will to make ourselves launch and support and redrive and drive again this form which we have evaluated to be worthy of our attention. So when you see the letter H or mentally the other two lines in and say that in all analyses of all situations you must think clearly, get the form of the situation, see how much of it is emotively charged, liking or disliking in yourself and other beings, and decide how much volitional intent it is worthy of receiving from you. Once you've got this, you have to put it into operation. And the letter for this is the letter R. Letter R means quite simple to differentiate. And in the act of differentiating, to translate a condition of mere power, mass power, might, into right. That the only difference between might and right is that right is might plus differentiation. You all have might substantial power because in existing at all you are a substantial power 
But if you can differentiate your own power in that threefold way, then your might becomes right. Now, we here see the basic type of this word hieros. And we can see immediately why it is sacred. Why hierology is the study of the sacred traditions of ancient peoples because it is concerned with the technique of the differentiations of power that turn might into right. The rest of the word is simply a <coughs> qualification of this basic fact. Power differentiates. When the word Lord Acton power corrupts. Corruption means breaking into little bits. And that is precisely what has to be done. This is the whole meaning of Christianity. Christ put it in the way, except the seed falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. Your might, if it does not corrupt, that is, if you don't break it up into bits and analyze it, break your one might, into the infinity of motivations that it contains, the infinity of emotive attitudes, the infinity of formulation possibilities in it, if you don't break it up, then it will operate in a non-differentiated, a protopathic, primitive manner. But if you do break up what is inside you, what you're doing is enlightening yourself <coughs> to become corrupt is to become enlightened. <coughs> Everybody his own picture adoring vain. This corruption is not a, an exhortation to go to Denmark to see erotic exhibition. It is a statement, quite simply, that the body of your mass energy must be analysed by you, by yourself internally, by a process of simple watchfulness of your own motivation, your own emotive attitude and your own idea. This is the only way to convert your might into right. And the other beings in the world who have already differentiated to some degree their might and thereby turn it into right, they already have an advantage of you in the same way that parents have one over children. Most parents know more about how baby was born than most babies know when they are born. And on bigger they've eaten more and they can hit the baby harder than the baby can hit them. Now imagine this word. We put an I in there and an E. We put an OS then. And we make this word, which progressively degenerated and was displaced by the word priest. This word, this hieros, means a being who knows that the universe is power and nothing but power, and knows that he himself is a modality of power, and insofar as he is determinable in any way, circumscribable, finitely recognisable, he is to that extent 
differentiated from the rest of the infinity of power. And Hieros, in this sense, is a self-initiated, self-precipitated, self-created, self-objectified, sentient power who knows that he is so and knows that there is no other rule. There's a funny program on earlier tonight about Muggeridge and one or two other funny men talking about religion and simply because they never came down to this level of discussion he went nowhere a well-educated man university gentleman well-known was uttering the stupid statement <coughs> of a small boy people banning things about like why does God allow suffering this kind of statement can only come in minds who have never contemplated the fact of ultimate power being the only reality why does infinite power allow finite power, that is, a zone of its own being, to initiate a process of action? Why does it? Because it cannot stop it. Because the essential quality of that infinite power that is called, in the Gospel of Yom, the God, as opposed to any finite concept of the God, the essential property and quality of the God is that, as an infinite sentient power continuum, he can initiate anywhere, whatever, throughout himself, at his own will, in that place. And in any other place of his own being, he cannot stop himself initiating something that he decides to initiate in another place. <coughs> Christ said, don't let one of your hands know what the other hand is doing. He didn't have time to finish that sentence. He should have finished, because it's none of its business. <laughs> when we examine this word, and realize that it means a human being, who had, by whatever mysterious processes of education, training, yoga and bahoga, had attained this realization, that he was, in fact, a power against which not even infinity can act to destroy. Milton, when he was writing Paradise Lost, saw this and felt a bit uneasy about it, because he knew perfectly well that all power is eternal, indestructible. And therefore, when the God created a funny fellow Lucifer, Beelzebub, and all those other nice fellows before the revolution, that he had done nothing other than circumscribe zones of his own being in the place of that being. And that it was the power in the place of that being that was the authority for that being precipitating itself unless another being outside this being has no authority whatever over it. So if we say this is Satan, and this is Beelzebub, and this is Michael, if you like, Michael here. When these three beings come into being, they are only zones of infinite sentient power 
self-activated and self-formulated, self-felt, self-willed into being precisely what they are, and there is no authority whatever for them being other than they are, other than their own will and their own insight. There is no power in Satan that can destroy Beelzebub if he disagrees with him. If Satan examines his own potentialities much more than Beelzebub, you might find out an unanalyzed part of Beelzebub's power and secretly shoot at it a little stimulus and catch the imagination of Beelzebub and subordinate Beelzebub to Satan. But he cannot destroy Beelzebub. Beelzebub is part of the eternal sentient power of the absolute, the God. So that not even the infinite, absolute, omnipotent, omniscient can remove one tiniest little zone of its own power from itself. And as initiative is its essential property wherever it is, it cannot make any single zone within itself agree with its decision to make a world and what kind of world it should be. This means that when men say, why does God allow this? They don't know that he cannot stop it. All that a larger circle comprising Satan and Michael and Beelzebub can do when they misbehave is contract on them a bit and hope that the restraint upon them will make them think a bit. But if you remember in Milton's analysis he makes it very clear when they were knocked down for their rebellion they didn't cease to exist. And Milton makes it very clear that they couldn't cease to exist because they were spirit. Eternal. And when they sat down in the place into which they were knocked, they said, well, what should we do with the place now? Furnish it? Mm-hmm. Take these lovely uh, diamonds and various precious and semi-precious stones and make a palace. We'd be knocked down. But do we have to stay down? And if we do, why not make the place comfortable? <laughs> and whatever other purpose he up there has, to put in our place another being who shall behave in the manner he wishes. We are still existent. We are still powerless. We can still fight him. We can still insert funny ideas into his new creature. <laughs> and we will fight him for the dominion of this creature. And because we are as eternal as he is, who will say how the battle will go? Who has the most patience? What we know if we read the Old Testament which of course we don't but if we do we found out that Jehovah God is very very impatient he says so (laughs) he repented him that he had made man often that great God says why did I mug this rotten lot I will make me a fresh start I will wet them (laughs) and he found that it doesn't do any good to constrain people from outside if you can't worm at them secretly from inside, you cannot do anything with them. In the end, he did a very dirty trick on them. He murdered a certain aspect of his own being, pure logic, and he surreptitiously slipped the seed of logic into his creatures. 
and they can't get rid of it. Human beings, no matter how they twist and turn, can't help a process going on inside them that says, it would have been better if you'd have done this, more profitable. They cannot get rid of the profit motive in their own being. And this is the dirty trick played upon them. But only by themselves. Because this God that did it on them is a continuum. And they are not other than that continuum of self-modulized. And therefore, even if he had not, they, by the very fact that they bother to swipe out a sphere of influence, have gone under the law of reason. Because they have drawn a circle. Now, in their own days, when there was a degree of self-control, when a hierarch made a zone of influence, he knew that he had made it, and he would quite likely knock it down again in a moment and move somewhere else. The uh, exoteric historians don't know about this, and therefore they talk about the collapse of empires. But really, no such collapse has occurred. All that has happened is that the real hierarchs have moved around the world in a certain order, deserting civilization after civilization, and leaving it in charge of people who didn't know the rules. It fell down after they left. There's no such thing as the degeneration of Babylon, of India, of China, of Egypt, of Greece, and all. But it's only a migration the hierarchical intelligences of those places, moving around all the time to ever new and more interesting centres of influence and power. Lao Tse gave the game away. He said, when the state is about to totter, the sage has departed. It survives in our little idiom, the eleventh hour, when the hands of the clock are on eleven, there's only one hour to go to twelve, and after that the hand starts falling again. Every finite zone of creation has a certain absorption capacity for interest. And when that is exhausted, which it must be, it is time for initiators to leave because they have fulfilled the logical possibilities of that situation. Therefore they leave. But they're rather clever, because at eleven o'clock they know they're going to leave. So they always sell the business to another man with potentials of becoming 12 o'clock. And they don't mention that immediately after that they'll start becoming 1 o'clock. <laughs> now, when the hierarchs set up a structure of power and sell it to somebody, they initiate that man into the formal structure that they have built and they tell him, you are in charge of this dominion which we are selling you, and this is how formally it is run. And they conferred upon him the title priest, instead of hieros. The priest simply means that he has the rationale of the formal running of that thing, but he has not had conferred upon him the initiative to find new modes of making it survive. So that the priest is simply a person who has received formal knowledge by initiation of another being. Formal knowledge of how a particular formulated situation can be run. 
but he's received no power, no initiation <coughs> in how to make that thing survive when real initiation moves away. Now, the word sacred, the dictionary will tell you, has the same root as a little bone in the base of your spine, and there's the word secret, and you will know if you study your physiology at all, that a particular zone specifically referred to as sacred by the ancients was simply the center of sexual generative power. You know that if you do not comprehend what sexual energy is in you, if you don't permeate it with your understanding, you are entirely at its mercy. It will tell you where to point. And it will tell you in grammatically where your ancestors pointed most pleasurably. And it will make quite sure that you fall in love with green eyes or blue eyes or grey eyes. Noses are too say or aquiline. In other words, if you don't comprehend that particular center of power and its mode of operation, then you are at the mercy of a force rooted in cosmic initiative which has its own purpose, not yours. Now, the Gnostic philosophers, who were bitterly attacked by the Christians, taught a very simple thing that the man inside the universe has been encapsulated by the creator of the universe and enslaved and made to work and that therefore for him the creator of the universe is a devil William Blake said they worship the devil under the name of Jehovah in so far as you are inside the universe and in this case located on a terrestrial body the earth and in a particular country and subjected to particular national traditions and education so in so far as you are conditioned by these you are at the mercy of a devil devil whom you have been taught to worship as God and the Gnostics said well the only thing to do about this is break through all these restricting impositions and become the free spirit that was before this cosmos, this universal jail, was fabricated. Now, obviously, the people who represent the devil-devil, that is to say, material authorities of finite power on earth, did not like the men that talked that the universe was a jail, and that the creator thereof was, in fact, a jailer. So they suppressed and although they wrote very intelligently, their books were simply kept away from the people by the simple expedient, which Abel recently discovered, of not making them available at 360 paperbacks. They thought that the universe's jail could be viewed both ways. You could view it negatively. How can I ever break out? Astronauts are trying to break out terrestrial gravity. If they get out of that, they'll have to break out of solar gravity. If they break out of that, they'll have to break out of sidereal gravity. And it takes a long, long time to travel to even the nearest star. 
some very whiskered old men will be getting on the edge of freedom <laughs> just when they're dropping dead. <laughs> now, Yogi says, luckily, there is a totally different way of getting out of this jail. And says, see that it's a jail and do what the best lags do in jail. Make friends with the warders. Learn how to split a match into 20 so that you can light 20 cigarettes with it. You have to suck the end of the match and wet it. Now that's a deliberate misleading you know. Or you do. There's a difference of opinion about this amongst the jailbirds. <laughs> the fact is it can be done. I've seen a short-haired man who has done it in my person. You make friends with the jailers. You learn how to trade flags with the warders and distribute them to the other prisoners who don't know how to do that. You can, in effect, run the jail as if it were a large business. <laughs> now, this is a true hierarchical method for dealing with the universe. And, of course, this is very secret. The essential thing about it is to recognize that every being is self-precipitated because ultimate reality is a continuum of sentient power. That no one, whatever, has any right to complain, no matter what happens to him. If he's blown to bits in the physical world by nuclear weapons, he has no valid ground of complaint. He should have been alert and made friends with the men that were handling the bombs. He should have done something. He shouldn't have done anything except be where he was, if he didn't like it. But if he knows that being blown to bits by nuclear bombs is a quick way out of the universal jail, if you're in the right state of mind, then he can accept this and write letters of appreciation about it to the press. <laughs> Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.